You're listening to the Principal Meet Practice podcast from Singularity University. I'm Kyle Nell, and this season we're partnering with our friends at INSEAD to bring you deep conversations into the realities of managing through uncertainty. Each episode will feature an expert whose focus is on the theory behind a topic and a practitioner who is out on the front lines actively bringing these concepts to life. We'll cover topics from the future of retail to the education crisis and more. Let's dive in. Today, we're going to cover the topic strategies for work and home with Jennifer Petrigleri, joining us from INSEAD and Karen Tay, Singularity University faculty. For many, balancing work and home life is always a challenge, but now due to COVID-19, work and home are more intertwined than ever. This can be fun for some, overwhelming for others, and downright stressful for many. Today, we'll talk about strategies for both our current environment and in the future to balance work and home life. Welcome, everyone. So let's, let's dive in and talk to Jennifer first. Jennifer, Jennifer is an Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at INSEAD and the author of an amazing book called Couples That Work, which explores how working couples can thrive in love and in work. And her research investigates how individuals craft and sustain their professional and personal identities in contexts characterized by high uncertainty, such as mobile careers or organizations and professions that are in crisis. Thanks for being with us, Jennifer. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Welcome, welcome. Well, I just want to dive right in and ask, you know, I, I really, really loved your book. And like so many have said, there's been a lot of discussion on this topic, but not a lot of great theory around this topic. And as someone who just had a, ba- a second baby, my wife and I are four weeks old. We're particularly in the midst of all of this, uh, trying to figure out how to prioritize, how to make things work. And so your book really, really hit home. So the first question I just want to ask, so in these moments of uncertainty and crisis, you know, whether it be a personal crisis or a personal time of change or in a global pandemic that could stimulate these other things, there's no doubt that this year in particular just seems to be thing after thing after thing. What advice do you have for listeners who are establishing who they are during this time of crisis, both personally and in their careers? You know, it's a great question, and it's one that many, many of us are facing right now. And the reason we're facing it, of course, is that all of these crises, they amplify anything that's going on in our lives, whether that's good things or bad things. So if there's little tensions in your couple, you're going to feel it a lot more. If you had any career uncertainty, you're going to feel it a lot more. So it's really amplifying all those things that maybe we swept under the carpet last year or just thought, oh, I'll deal with that another time. Now it's really in our face. And there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. We have to deal with it. And I think the best piece of kind of just one piece of advice is these things are tackleable, but the only way to tackle them is through really deliberate conversations with yourself, but also with your partner. I think at times of crisis, we have a tendency to to fold inwards and think, okay, I just need to keep on the sort of good old British, keep calm and carry on. That's not actually a very good strategy, um, particularly in our relationships. It's much better at times like these to really lay everything out on the table. What are we concerned about? What are the pinch points? And how are we going to deal with them together in a way that makes sense for us both, in a way that suits both our aspirations? And that's really the key because the biggest mistake couples make is to really set themselves up in service of one partner. So that partner gets all the power and their aspirations met. And the other partner is the support crew. And when you set up like that, you're really setting yourselves up for failure in the long term. 
Yeah, I love that. And just to follow up on that, you know, your book, Couples That Work, you know, focuses really on three phases that are part of every couple's work-life journey, like you just described a little bit. What are some of the common challenges that couples face during these three stages? And are there tools that they can use to navigate them? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I found was, of course, it's challenging in a working couple, but it's not actually challenging all the time. And the challenges really come around these three transitions, these three phases. And the first one, I'm guessing, is where you are now, right? which is when we first get together as a couple and we first face our hard choices. Now, this is usually brought on by two things. One is a career choice, like your partner gets offered a job on the other side of the country, right? What do you do? You've got to make a choice. The other classic one is children arrive. And what both of these means, uh, what both of these mean is that your lives can no longer exist in parallel. Your careers can't exist in parallel. They've got to, they influence each other, right? So you've got to make some agreements around how this all works. And I think the biggest mistake couples make at this point, and you can, we can see if you're making it later, is, is they focus on the practicalities, right? They think around childcare, around geography, around spare bedrooms, all this sort of thing. But the real question couples are, are wrestling with here are, are priorities, right? Whose career has priority? How do we juggle your ambitions against my ambitions? How do we really support each other and really build a life that suits us both? Now, of course, that doesn't mean we can both have everything we want, but a life where both of us can get some of what we want and really feel like we're in it together. And that's a tricky transition from if you think to four or five years ago before your kids came along, where you're both merrily going along on your careers, you've got your friends, you've got your hobbies, and suddenly the world is upside down. That's a really big transition to make. So that's the first transition. The second transition is more linked to career stage. And this is more where I am in my career, right? The mid-career point. And what we see if we look at the shape of people's careers at the first couple of decades, we're on this real career acceleration phase. We're trying to build our career. We're striving. We're building. We're growing. We're establishing our reputation. And then around the mid-career, when we've been going sort of 15, 20 years, we step back and we start to think, is this really what I want? Why am I doing all this? Is this really my direction? And for most of us, the answer is no, right? We've been doing this stuff. It's not that it's served us badly, but maybe we just want to make some reorientation. And I think sometimes when people think about this, they think, oh, midlife crisis, I'm going to give it all up and, I don't know, open a little, a little country inn or something or a cupcake shop. You know, okay, some people may do that. For many people, it's a reorientation, but still it's a big transition. And there are a lot of questions in the couple around this time around, you know, what do we really want? How do we need to support each other? How can we both transition if that means things to our finances, if that means things to how we split the family load, etc.? So this is a very stressful time for couples. And this really comes down to in what way are we really supporting each other? And are we trying to keep our partner in the role we need them to be in to sustain our careers? Or can we shift that system? So that's the second transition. And then the third transition comes later on when our social roles are changing. So we're past that career acceleration phase. We're no longer the bright young things if we're lucky we're mentoring them. You know, the kids have left home, so we're no longer hands-on parents. And on the one hand, there's this sense of loss, you know, goodness me, who am I now that all these roles are changing? But at the same time, there's this huge opportunity for the first time in 20 plus years we have a bit more freedom, hopefully financial, a bit more financial freedom. We have freedom from parenting responsibilities. Grandpa grandchildren aren't along yet. So it's a time of real massive reinvention in couples. And this is a time of legacy. You know, what do we want to leave? 
a time of shifting priorities. And it's actually a very exciting time for working couples, this third transition. So they're the transitions in a little nutshell. I love that. I love that. So many questions I want to follow up on, but I also want to bring in our other distinguished guest, Karen Tay, um, to, to talk about someone who's actually leading and co-leading global team and managing her family at the same time. So Karen Tay is a faculty member here at Singularity University. She's based in San Francisco Bay Area. She's working for Smart Nation and Digital Government Group, as well as a Singapore global, global network, both based in Singapore. She is also a working mother of children aged four and two, and her husband also works. Welcome, Karen. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Jennifer. It's good to be with you guys. So, Karen, you wrote an awesome article uh, for today about some common challenges in keeping remote teams effective and your recommendations. You know, everyone is all of a sudden having to work for, remotely, or the vast majority of people still are but maybe not doing it so well. Can you tell us about your experiences when it comes uh, to the challenge of blurred work-life boundaries? When I first moved into this remote work arrangement, I think it was three and a half years ago, I was extremely disorienting because there's absolutely no boundaries, especially when you talk about different time zones, right? I cover SF, New York, London, and Singapore. And so anybody could be calling me at 7 a.m. or 10 p.m. and 11 p.m. And it was just absolutely crazy. I thought I had to respond to everything. Especially with COVID coming up, I realized that everyone was shifting into this those work arrangements. And I shared how I tackled that. And that's really, it was really about setting those boundaries. And I want to bring in what Jennifer said. You know, you have a spouse, you have young kids who are, who are at home now. And I, I can't just be taking all these calls and, let, you know, uh, expecting that he's not going to uh, have to do his own stuff. So I started to really put some boundaries and encourage my team to set boundaries. What hours will you be working? What hours will you not be working? Let's work around each other's arrangements. And I think some structure in your work. So because I cover so many zones, I also make sure that I have regular timings of meetings, all and regular timings of check-ins with all my team members so that it's not like anybody can call on me anytime, right? There'll always be that, but you try to minimize that so that you can offer some predictability for yourself, but also for your partner who has to be picking up the rest of the slack if it's not you. So I think that is one of the big things for me um, that I've been practicing and especially during this COVID period when we have two kids at home. Yeah, it seems like from reading both of your works and knowing a little bit about your backgrounds and for myself too, it's always about managing your expectations and others too, about what you're going to do, what we're going to do. And when things fall apart, it's generally because either I'm not managing my own expectations or helping others manage theirs too, right? Whether it be the kids or your spouse or what have you. So especially now, I just want to open it up. Well, Jennifer in particular, you interviewed so many couples while writing your book. So based on what you heard, is it really that people aren't managing their own expectations or talking, like you said, don't just keep calm and carry on, but really get it out on the table and say, this is what I want. This is what you want. How do we bring these things together and how do we trade off or what's really going on? What are some common mistakes that you found that couples are making while mixing work and the relationships? Yeah, I would say the two most common mistakes are, I think Many couples talk to each other, but they don't necessarily talk about the right thing. <laughs> and I think, I think when they, men, and many couples talk about expectations, but they really talk about expectations on a day-to-day basis. And the problem when we do that is we drift, right? We start drifting away from our aspirations, what's really important to us. And time and time again, I'd hear couples saying, you know, I just woke up and felt like, my goodness, how did we get here? You know, this is just not where I want to be. And I feel resentful or I feel guilty. 
And so the mistake is people will say, oh, a relationship's all about talking. And I will say, well, not exactly. <laughs> what do you communicate about? And so I think it's really getting back to that level of aspirations. What really matters to you in life? Is everything you're doing and acting aligning with those? And if not, you are going to have a problem. Now, the issue is often that problem is like the boiling frog. It, it appears a little bit later down the road, but the drift starts a lot earlier. And so I think the first big problem is that couples aren't quite talking about the right level. They're talking a lot about the day-to-day expectations, who's picking up daycare, how are we going to manage meetings today? But they're not talking about, is this behavior really supporting each other? And then I think the second piece is, you know, many of the couples who were who were failing I looked at them a lot and and what I found was it's not that they didn't support each other. It's that they didn't really understand what kind of support their partner wanted. And so there was this feeling in the couples that both partners felt like, my God, I'm really trying hard and I'm, and I'm just not appreciated. And from the other side, they were feeling like I'm not getting the support I wanted. So I think couples often find it hard to ask for the things they need and be really specific about, you know, what I really need at the end of each day is 10 minutes where I can just download how I'm feeling. Or what I really need is this practical support. I think we're not very good in our couples about asking for really what we need. And that's something that's quite simple, but can make a huge difference to couples' lives. No question. Because the job, the job's important, but the family's more important, or at least should be. The, one of the things that my background is storytelling and I became obsessed with storytelling and, and doing projective storytelling. And we fell into something similar with this drift that you talked about where I was working all the time and we had a small child, we had a small girl and I was traveling all the time and it was just hard. Right. And so I, I decided to, we decided to take our own medicine, which was to do storytelling as a projective technique for our family. And so now we do this every year where in January 1st, we write our Christmas card for the year ahead as a whole family and a daughter who's almost nine now, we've been doing that where she writes a story of what she would have want on the Christmas card, you know, like Alice did blah, 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 you know, and, and mom and dad do too. And then we see how our three stories would merge together. And then we can make trade-offs about what we want to do. Like we want to travel or if we want to, you know, keep on working towards that black belt or whatever. And we found that works really, really well. I'm just curious, Karen, you know, the working from home bit and Jennifer too, the working from home bit is just makes it so much harder because there aren't really separations between I'm working now and I'm at home now. It's all just who, especially for those of us who work in global organizations where anyone at any point can hit you up on WhatsApp and you feel the necessity to respond. What techniques have you found to keep the work environment now that it's at the house, a positive one and keep that morale high but also keep the boundaries together. Well, I think there's something to be said about boundaries in all in all aspects, right? Physical boundaries as well as mental boundaries and time boundaries. So when, when we first started this and the kids were suddenly at home with us all the time, our house was absolutely not set up for, for this. Everything was spilling into each other and I couldn't get my brain space to, to, to be in work. And it, you know, I was also in crisis mode for the first month at work. So that was really hard. I think we had to step back and think, okay, we need to set some of these physical boundaries, how rooms are arranged, how workspaces are arranged, how her school spaces are arranged, um, as well as time boundaries, right? Having that discussion with my team. And where would be that time to be a couple? I think that is the hardest part. And, you know, we bought a bike trailer so we could dump them both in the back and then bike and talk, right? But there's all these creative ways you need to think about it. And I love Jennifer's work because 
it's so easy to start to feel like your spouse is just a co-worker. So you just get things done together. You got married to create a, a life together and that's an unfolding process. It keeps happening. It doesn't stop. And you need to have that space to be intentional about where do we want our life to unfold together. And so my husband and I, when we got married, we actually did something similar to you. We have this little document where you put down, okay, what we want for our work, for our marriage, for our community, for our service uh, in the year. We, we used to review it every quarter, but now we do it more like every six months or a year because of the kids. But it really helps us set that anchor, like where are we heading together? Sorry, I think that's so interesting, Carrie. I mean, I couldn't agree more on the boundaries. And I want to come back to the storytelling because I think you're both doing the best practice for couples, right? Which is keeping this alive as a habit. I think the biggest mistake couples make is they have this conversation once and they think, you know, all sorted, done that and move on. And it's really this habit of telling the stories because if we think about what purpose do stories serve in our lives as humans, they're pieces of our identity, aren't they? They're stories of who we become and the people we become. And I think that's another thing we need to think of in this period of confinement, especially if we have children. The reality is for most of us, maybe not for your new four-week-old baby, but, but for most of us, this will be the defining moment of our children's childhood. You know, when they are our age, they will sit around the dinner table with friends and say, what were you doing in COVID? You know, what, what did you do in confinement? And I think sometimes we get so obsessed with the day-to-days, we're not thinking about what is the story we would like our children to say about this time. Now, that's not to put pressure on our shoulders and say everything needs to be perfect. But, you know, this is a special time. And I think it's worth considering what is the story we want them to be telling. And of course, it's going to be a truthful story. It was messy and there were days when it was crazy. But it was also an amazing time to be together as a family. And I think to keep that in mind can be quite grounding among all the priorities and the things we need to get done and the homeschooling and everything. You know, what is the story we want to tell at this time? And hopefully it will be a real story, ups and downs, but it will also be a story with moments of magic in it. No question about it. Stories are everything. There was a, a large, and we can share a link to it too, one of the largest studies on happiness ever, ever done about children's happiness and success afterwards. And one of the most interesting things they found was that success in these children globally, no matter what their age, or no matter what their income was, their religious background, socioeconomic, it didn't matter. There were some obvious things like no abuse, access to basic shelter and food and all those things. But one of the most interesting things was that their family around them told them stories about how their family, maybe in generations past or their own parents, had encountered really tough times and overcome them. And they told these stories over and over and over again. And I think about that a lot. Like we, we, our families have great stories, no matter what your family is, you have great stories to tell, to reinforce to your kids and to yourselves that we're not the first ones encountering these terrible times. Yes, this is pretty terrible, but there have been really bad times in the world and we've overcome them. And so I, Jennifer, I love that this will be the story that our grandkids will talk about the big COVID, just like we talk about World War II and just like we talk about the greatest generation, those kinds of things. And, and I really love that. I love that so much. Then it gets into like, it's really hard for me to deal with is how do you deal with stress at work? Because stress, when you're working at home, stress at work is stress now. If you have a very difficult conversation on the phone and then immediately your child runs in, um, which does off to happen, or your spouse runs in with a question about something, their headspace is in a totally different zone than what you just had to deal with, right? And so 
How do you manage that? Um, how do you really, besides creating the physical boundaries, I mean, are there tools or ways to be able to make that mental shift so that the person on the, on, in your home doesn't have to feel that angst and that stress? Yeah. So I actually just published a piece in Harvard Business Review on this, which you might want to post um, in the show notes. And I think there's a, there's a couple of really concrete things you can do. First is one of the biggest things that buffers us, buffers our homes from our work stress is our commute. That we have a bit of time to get away, the boss is not shouting at us, all the rest of it. And I think we need to engineer commutes into our own homes. Now, that sounds a little bit strange, but I think there's a couple of things we do it. One is by being very clear about when and where is mummy or daddy's work time, right? Whether it's the notice on the door or whatever, and making sure that work only gets done in a certain place in the house. So that when you close the door on the bedroom you're working in, or if you're lucky and you have a home office or wherever, there's something about the physicality that affects our bodies and really affects physiologically the stress we're feeling. So that moving out of a physical space into another really, really helps. The second thing is, which is harder now, but it is possible, is having time on your own. Whether it's just the 15-minute walk around the block at the end of the day, whether it's, and this isn't working time on your own, right? Whether it's, you know, five minutes meditating in the bathroom in the morning, whatever it is, that alone time is really important to give us the resources, the inner resources to deal with each other's stress. Because it's not just our stress we're dealing with, right? We're also dealing with our partner's stress and our children's stress. So there are very concrete ways we can buffer it. And I'd love to hear Karen, because I know Karen's children are younger than mine, you know, 18 months and four years old. And it's very stressful with kids like that around all the time. I mean, I'd love to hear how how she's coping. But I think there are some really practical things we can do to to buffer that stress as well. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Jennifer, for that. You know, I think as as a parent, you think you should be always productive. I should be either always producing my work or always with my children. And I should be doing stuff for them when I'm with them. As high achievers, that's our bent. But in this COVID situation, one thing that I've really learned is to like figure out where their joy overlaps with mine. And I brought up the bike carriage because I like going out and feeling air on my face, but there's, you know, I, I still need to give my husband time to work. So I can park them both in there and do something I enjoy, and they like it too. They play I Spy, you know, it's kind of mindless for me, but it's fun for them. I started watching National Geographic videos with them, you know, dolphins and whales because they like it. And I like it. And, you know, I, I relax a little bit of my screen time uh, phobia. And, and yeah, I really like what you said about that's how I make time for myself. And when even time when I'm supposed to be working, which is my, my, my work slot, I say, I don't need to be fully productive here. Let me take 10 minutes to do something I like. And, you know, reading books, for example, something that I, that I do. That's such a, this is a profound thing. Like, where does our joy overlap? I love that too. Cause in my experience too, there's an added bonus when you're doing something both together that you both enjoy. And then this, this bonding moment, in addition to this like stress relieving thing, like you said, what doesn't really matter what it is. That's, that's so important. So then Karen, my question and Jennifer too, you know, it's easy to kind of coming from my own point of view, you know, I'm working, I'm doing this, whatever, but then, then you have a spouse that you're also supporting, right? And they're also going through their own stress and their own challenges. It's like, what are some things you can do to help support your partner who might be going through their own stress at work or in their own life? What are some things that can help? I have a couple of things to say on that. The first is 
you cannot solve your partner's problems and you cannot take their stress away from them. And I think that's really important to recognize because sometimes, particularly in this situation where there's just the two of us, the only adults we may be seeing, we can feel like I'm responsible for everything. And when you do that, all you do is amplify the stress in the house because you're going to get stressed out that you can't solve their stress. So you're making things work. So one thing is you want to support, but it is not your thing to solve. It's very important. The second two things are one is just asking them how you can best support them. I think oftentimes when we see our partner stress, we give them what we would want to be given. But very often we won't be supported in different ways. And then I think, you know, 10 minutes undivided attention at the end of the day goes a really long way. And people sometimes say to me, oh, 10 minutes, that's nothing. And I will say, okay, tell me the last time you just sat and listened to your partner for 10 whole minutes without checking any electronic device, without butting in, without interrupting, without giving your opinion. And I bet you will be thinking a long time back. And I encourage everyone, try it tonight. Like literally time yourself 10 minutes. You say nothing. You just listen. And you will find it has a transformational effect on your relationship. And it's 10 minutes, right? Who cannot afford 10 minutes at the end of the day? And I think that's the biggest help we can give to our partner's stress is just a little pockets of real undivided attention with pure listening. I love that. That's so great. Which gets into like the psychological safety that Karen, I know you've written about quite a bit. This is so critical. It's been documented quite well that this is how high-performing teams perform so highly is that they have the psychological safety. From your experience, why is it so important? And then how can we as employers instill this in our organizations? Absolutely. You know, when in, in modern organizations, there are two layers of work. There's the work you actually do and the work, the extra psychological work you do when you ask me, do I fit in? Do people like me? Uh, is it, am I doing well? And I think as a boss, you want to take away that second layer of work as much as possible so they can focus on the substance. And when COVID hit, you know, and everyone was going remote, I, I noticed that the teams that were, my teams in HQ, headquarters in Singapore, they were not previously remote, but now they were. And I knew that they were going to face questions like, my boss think I'm not working. Um, he doesn't see me all the time, you know, in the office. Or uh, I, I need to be answering on Microsoft Teams or Slack all the time, like immediately, so that it counteracts that feeling. And, and I wanted to come right off the bat and say that I do not expect that. You know, um, these are my expectations. I, I, and this is what I do not expect. And I also started to acknowledge some of the challenges that they would face, you know, because face-to-face, sometimes it's so much easier to establish trust with another team. You can't do that on online. In the online world, you will take some time to adapt and find out what's the best way to do it. And I said, take your time. Like, this is something you need to figure out the new way of doing. And I appreciate how much more difficult it is. So I think as a boss, it's very important to be explicit about that, about taking away that second layer of work that distracts people from doing what you hired them to do. And I think that's why it's so important. And, and I probably too, it's to reinforce it over and over and over again, because they'll probably listen to it and go, sure, okay, that sounds nice, but I'm going to get back on Teams and start sending notes right away because I still want to show that I'm super productive. So I'm guessing, is this something you have to reinforce over and over and over again in different ways? Reinforce, you, you model taking your own breaks. I'll be like, you know, it's 4 p.m. and I have a call that tonight. I am going to take my kids out for a two-hour walk now. I will not reply. Uh, let me know if anything is urgent and I'll get back to it later. Two hours, can wait, right? And I think as bosses, we, we don't really realize how much the power of modeling. I'm taking a break, you can take a break. 
it's one thing to just say you can and then don't just be that workaholic, right? So that's very important. I mean, I think Karen is so right. And you know what? In doing that, she's also modeling to her children. And I think in this, in this period, we're also teaching our children, whether we think we are or not, a lot about work, right? What does it mean to be, what does it mean to work? Why do we work? What's our commitment to work? How do we balance work and family? And so I think Karen is killing two birds with one stone, right? She's being an amazing boss and she's also providing an amazing role model for, for her children around her. So these things often have these double benefits and it's great. Yeah. You know, that's so true. Uh, I had a friend that said that every day is take your daughter to work day now because they see and overhear everything, right? And it's true. Like she'll, my daughter will overhear me have a conversation about something and ask me something very specific about what she heard through the wall. And so you got to watch yourself, right? About what's, uh, how, how, you're, how you're showing up. I really like that a lot. Adds another, another layer to the fun work side of things. As we're going through this, you know, there's, there's so much change going on, specifically with COVID. Do you think, and this is for both of you, do you think COVID has changed anything fundamentally? Do you think that this is going to change some of the fundamentals of the things that you've both written extensively about? Or is it just more of an acceleration or something else? Um, I think it's, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? And I think the honest answer is we don't know yet. <laughs> I would like to think the biggest thing that will come out of this is the destigmatization of remote work. I think before we know the statistics tell us that if you, even if your company has these flexible work policies, if you take them, you will be passed over for a promotion, you'll be seen as less committed, all this sort of stuff. But now all the bosses, the top bosses are remote working. And they're saying it's possible, it's actually quite productive. I'm hoping that that will change the world. However, I also know that people, our habits slip back very quickly. And I also know that the reality is for many workers, it's not possible to work from home. You know, we're in the privileged set who can do our work from home and it's manageable. Many, many people are not in that position. And so I think, you know, when I hear these wild statements of the world of work will completely change post-COVID, and I think two things. I think, well, which world of work are you in? You know, certainly not with the factory workers and all the rest of it. But I also think, you know, I wonder how many of these changes will really stick. And I think, you know, this is an empirical question and we'll find out, but I hope some do. Yeah. Karen, what do you think? I think, yes, remote work will become more mainstream. I think one of the biggest benefits of this situation, and of course, as Jennifer says, it's not equally distributed, but for those who can afford to work remotely, it's a sense of, wow, this is good, right? I didn't realize these things that I, my defaults were stuff that I just put up with. I didn't really, really like. I think people are also discovering that even though we can't wait to get our kids back to school. There's a certain part of the productivity-packed life that we are not that keen to get back on. And I think that moment of reckoning for people, especially for workers in demand, will force employers to reconsider how they manage talent. And I think that's something that I would really like to discuss with Jennifer as well. You know, given uh, what she's written about, you know, value placed on my spouse's career and different how the workforce is evolving, what talent wants is evolving, how do employers need to adapt? That's really the bread and butter of some of my work now. And I would love to hear and have that discussion. How do employers have to change? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think 
for me, it really comes back fundamentally to what is the logic of your talent management structures and processes? And this is a question which many HR professionals, when I raise it with them, they're like, is there a logic? I thought there were a logic. But there's always logic of almost all organizations, the logic, even if it's a modern organization who talk a good talk, the logic is my top talent has a stay-at-home support crew. So those top jobs are almost always set up as if the person can be mobile at the drop of a hat, can, you know, respond to work at the, you know, at a moment's notice can travel across the world. And that just is not the reality anymore for most couples. And I think it's about really fundamentally shifting the logic of my top talent has a stay-at-home spouse or a single to my top talent is partnered with someone who is equally talented, if not more so. And therefore, how do I shift everything to accommodate that? So I think it's really a fundamental logic question. And once you shift that logic, you can start to see all sorts of ways you can change the processes and structures, the talent pipelines, the career ladders, everything stems from that logic. How do you recommend having that conversation just amongst your your partner or your spouse uh, if you haven't had that conversation before? Or even if you have and you have it again about how we prioritize this this opportunity versus that opportunity and and how how does that how do you recommend uh, setting up that conversation yeah i think it's a good question and i think it's a series of conversations as opposed to one kind of 3 hour, 3 hour mammoth conversation i think there's a, a couple of things in it it first comes back to what are both our aspirations and are these opportunities aligning with them because if they're not it doesn't matter who's pri- you know whose priorities over whose And then I think, you know, there's three real basic choices. Do you go for one person having priority over the other, what we would classically call kind of primary, secondary careers? But that's not the only choice, right? You can also choose turn-taking, where maybe yours is priority right now and mine is a little bit more priority at home, but then we switch after a certain amount of time. And many couples now are opting for a third option, which is what I call double primary, which is saying, for example, like Karen, you know, we're going to base in San Francisco, but within that, we're both going to have full careers and and really try and maintain an equal prioritization. So I think we're past the stage in history where one person's career has to be the priority career. But I still think it needs to be negotiated. What is the model? Are you going to swap after a certain amount of time? And how does it fit with your aspirations, both at home and at work, right? Your aspirations for your family and your aspirations for your careers. And do you recommend having that conversation or at least parts of that conversation scheduling that? Because my guess is this is, especially when it's maybe a harder conversation to have, you can kind of kick that can down the road a number of times and then it gets really bad. Do you recommend putting that on a calendar or making it more of an official thing or how does that work? I do think this is part of the kind of yearly or six monthly health check conversation. Are we still good with our career prioritization? Can we see that maybe shifting in the future? Is this something we need to keep an eye on? I think it comes with that storytelling. And I see you do it once a year and that's great. I think there can be a lot of stuff to cover once a year. So I think kind of doing it maybe twice a year or, you know, revisiting it periodically. And certainly if there's a major transition coming up. So if in June you get an opportunity on the table, you obviously want to be revisiting that story. But it's not something you need to talk about every Friday night. That's obviously (laughs) clearly too much. I like the making it intentional too and not letting it slip away because these are the the important moments. Like you said at the beginning too, you can 
it, the drift can happen. You don't have these conversations on the regular. I mean, as a couple, you have to make that, you know, mix of lightness and these conversations can be very heavy. I think, like Jennifer said, as a spouse, you cannot answer any of your spouse's questions about their big things, but you can listen to them and make space for them. That Even that psychological safety applies within your couple. I give you that safety to evolve. I will support you. That is giving them that space, but not necessarily having to answer or give them or relieve their stress in that situation. So I'll give you an example. One of the couples I interviewed, and it's really sweet. So I interviewed couples separately. So they each tell me stories. And, you know, they'll, I was interviewing this couple and he said to me, I'm going to tell you something. I mean, she may not mention this, but to me, this is the most important half an hour of our week. And on Saturday mornings, they have a bakery meeting. So they go to the bakery together, they sit at the same table, they order the same coffee and croissant, and they have half an hour where they, no phones, no nothing, where they just talk, right? And they can talk about anything. So it might be talking through a career thing, it might be talking about prioritization, it might be just how's your week gone. And then I talk to her and she's like, oh, well, there's just this moment in the week that's absolutely the most special moment for you. He probably won't mention it, but it's the bakery meeting, right? And I think, you know... Just as Karen said, it's about making space for these conversations to unfold. I think the danger with scheduling one thing a year or one thing every six months is like, oh, everything's powered into this and I better get it right and I better say everything I need to say. But I think, I mean, it doesn't need to be weekly, but I think just having these spaces, because this is the important stuff. This is the stuff we all want to discuss. And we all want our partners to know about us. It's, it's having, I love that idea, Karen, of having the space to just let this stuff unfold. It's so true too. And the, the, the biggest stuff tends to kind of come out when you're not planning too. Like you may not realize that you've had a really rough week because it happened in increments or you, you know, th- those kinds of things. It's not always a moment of crisis. I, I like that. I like the bakery meeting. I'm hoping that the bakery opens up down the street and we can start doing that. That'd be great. Well, thank you so much. This is a great conversation and, and, and really, really important. A lot of us have been working from home for a long time, I have, but everyone's having to live with this now. And so these things are becoming even more acute. So I really appreciate the time and your expertise. And I highly recommend reading both the articles from Karen and then also Jennifer's book, which is just phenomenal. I, I, I'm not just saying that because you're here. This is a must read for anybody that is supporting a spouse or, or is working themselves. Yeah. Um, Kyle, can I just add one more thing? Uh, yeah, because I wanted to comment on what Jennifer was talking about on what is that logic of how we hire people. So one of them is definitely on the basis of, well, one partner is unbounded. The other partner supports him, usually him, uh, but sometimes her. Uh, another, uh, another assumption and logic is that people are going to be wanting to climb their career ladder the whole time in their life. And what Jennifer's book is suggesting, and, you know, decades of psychological research as well, is that people do hit this point, phase two, as she mentions, where they, they wonder, like, is this what I'm supposed to be doing, right? Or other other more physical phases, like if they have children, uh, wanting to perhaps arrange their lives to accommodate that. You know, there's a whole range of how people respond at these different phases. And I work in partially in talent development. I have to attract some of the most sought-after tech talent from the Silicon Valley and the best tech ecosystems in the world to the government and to Singapore. And we've realized that that logic, we need to apply the logic of this talent today to how we recruit and retain people. For example, people always say they like that Google has this respectable level five where you can tap out for a while. You don't need to 
be too worried about progressing. You can make a really good salary if you perform well. And people like that because if they reach a stage like becoming a parent or wanting to start a new venture on the side, they appreciate that their work is bounded and they're not being forced to up or out. So I think some of these very flexible approaches, uh, a new logic is very important. People are not looking to climb. They're looking to look around, you know, jungle gym type of career. And I'm very heartened by how COVID is accelerating some of these better practices towards managing talent. And also too, it's forcing people, I know a lot of people and me too, to relook at what's really important and what we really want to be spending our time and energy doing. And that's always a good thing for sure. So some of the things that, that really struck me too were, like you said, Jennifer, talk about things more than the practicals. Well, that's just a basic thing. I think as I'm going through my week this week, I'm going to make sure, especially with this baby and, and everything, it's very easy to get caught up on the day-to-day of who's doing what and that's important, but, but get beyond that. I really appreciated that. The other one that I really love is engineering our commute and really making sure you're taking time for yourself and time to kind of separate and to kind of phase into those other things. And that's really, really critical. I'm going to try that one as well. And then Karen, the one that I just love so much is where does our joy overlap and where can we find things where we can do things together that our interests intertwine and, and we can spend time with the people that we love, but then also have that breakaway too. So we can decompress. There's so many other awesome things, but those are the three for me. Are there any things that stood out for for you both or, or anything you'd like to leave with as we, as we end? You know, we're living through a very challenging time. And I, I mean, I think your summary was great, Kyle. I, I think I would just add, you know, the one thing that I hope this crisis does is allow us to be a little bit kinder to ourselves and each other, both in our organizations and in our couples and in our, in our families. I think, you know, it takes a lot to keep a working couple going. And yet, there's huge power in working couples, right? They're shifting the inequality of society. They are role modeling for children. They're providing role models for organizations. And I think, you know, we need to give more hats off to working couples and say, you know, you're doing a good job and you will drop the ball sometimes and that's okay. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> that, you know, there's so much talk about fail fast in, in the Valley and in, in, in the startup scene, but as a parent and as a as, as somebody in a relationship, a long-term relationship or a married person, you're going to mess up. <laughs> that's, that's, part, that's part of the deal. You're going to fail, but fail fast and then get back on. I like that a lot. Erin? I think the, the blessing of having something shock the system like COVID is that it shakes up your defaults and makes you want to be more intentional. So how are we structuring our lives? You know, Are we serving as a couple in the way that we want or are we following kind of the, the inevitable pressures that society places on us? Like what story... Uh, do we want our children to take away from, from the crisis, but also from their growing up years about what's important in life? And I think uh, having a lot of the externalities stripped away has helped us become more intentional. So that's what I would like to leave with the audience. Thank you, Jennifer and Karen, for taking some time with us. And you can connect with them and find resources mentioned in this episode. There are many. So there's going to be a lot of great content in the show notes on things that you can do to apply these principles in your life and in your work life. And it will make things better. You can check that out at su.org slash podcast. And we'll see you next time. Thank you so much.